0: Hi, I'm Barnaby Cook, and welcome to The Exit Plan, a podcast for business owners that are interested in learning more about how to sell their business. Each episode, I interview someone who's bought or sold a business, either a creative agency or a production company. The conversation gets under the skin of why they wanted to sell or were looking to acquire, how the deal was structured, how they agreed upon a valuation, and what lessons they learned along the way. Here we go. Today's conversation is with Tom and Stephen from Mountain View who are based out of Atlanta in the big US of A. The business was founded in 1981 by Jim Tusty and Tom and Stephen were both employees. Uh, They were a production company initially but now they describe themselves as a full-service creative agency. They're doing around 4 million in revenue and employ roughly 15 people full-time plus a network of permalancers and freelancers. I was interested to hear how hard it was for the previous owner to find a buyer on the open market, despite having shopped it around for a while. In the end, they wound up with a much more elegant solution a management buyout. The deal went through various iterations from 100% earnout to 100% buyout on day one. Tom and Stephen give a great account of how it all went down. Hope you enjoy the conversation. So um, it would be excellent if you could start by introducing yourselves.
1: I am Tom Gagno, and I am one of the owners of Mountain View Group. And I have been with Mountain View for 32 years, have not been an owner for 32 years, but we'll get into that more.
2: I'm Stephen Pruitt. I am the other owner of Mountain View Group. Tom's business partner joined the company in two thousand and two as an employee, and then we bought it together two thousand and seven, two thousand and
0: eight. Thank you both for taking the time to come on this. But yeah, I'm really fascinated in how people go about buying and selling small and in inverted commas, creative businesses and and how that all works out. So, Um, When I kind of thought about putting the podcast together, you guys were top of mind because I know that that's an experience that you've been through and I'm just really curious to learn all about it. But you think it'd be really useful to just start and give us a bit of an overview of what Mountain View was like at the time.
1: Sure. Just to give you a a quick history of the company, Mountain View Group was founded as Mountain View Productions. It was uh, founded largely as a video production company. Um, It was founded in upstate New York in 1981. Uh, The founder of the company uh, was Jim Tusty. As Mountain View matured and worked with a lot of different clients, clients kept asking us to do more. So maybe for the first 20 years of the company, it was significantly a video production agency. And then as we started to work with larger companies, they said, hey, do you do design? Do you write speeches? Do you do communication strategy? And we always said yes as a company. Um, So we sort of expanded the portfolio of services that we offered. And so that gets loosely divided up in to video production, media production, design, communication, strategy, and planning. And and at times, and once in a while, we dabble in sort of social as well. So we're definitely matured over the history of the company into more of a full-service creative agency.
0: So how did the idea come about that you might buy the company?
1: Uh, Jim, the founder was both of our bosses, was my professional mentor, really. I grew up in this company and then also is a personal friend to both of us. And so that always makes for an interesting um, development when you're talking about an acquisition of a company. So Jim had owned the company for 26, 27 years. You know, I think he was at the point where as he looked at his next stage of his life wanted to do other things, wanted to do passion projects. And at the same time, he was sort of using that as an opportunity to sort of back away from the business a little bit, get out of the Mm day-to-day. But I'd say, you know, he would agree. I think a big driver for him is, as anyone who owns a, a business knows, you're on the hook. Your name's on the line of credit, your names on, you know, any loans that you take out. And, you know, when in bad months, you take the hit and good months, hopefully you get the rewards. But I think it was a strong desire of him to get out from under that sort of pressure and, and burden.
0: And what were your respective roles? Did you form the management team at the time or what were you both doing?
2: You know, I was a producer. I came on as a producer, I ran most of our biggest jobs, I think, at the time, but not a business owner.
1: (laughs) And I started out as a producer, but I had moved into both a little bit of sales and then general management. And I was at, at that time when Jim was sort of backing out a little bit, he made me the chief operating officer. So I was sort of running the company alongside him or with him.
0: Tom was my boss.
1: But not an owner.
0: But were you the sort of next in command or were you, how big was the team at the time?
1: Um, I mean, we've always been somewhere between eight and 15, you know, depending, but we were the two senior people Mm -hmm. at that time. You know, Mountain View has gone through many iterations of itself. So Jim had had different key leaders, but most of them at that point had set up their own shops.
2: It is an interesting question though, because I was pretty much the new guy. At the time, you know, I'd only been part of Mountain View five years before we started talking about purchasing the company. Um, and you know, if I read into your question, how did I end up in that position? You know, I don't know. I, I think as Jim was moving his interest to other projects, you know, I feel like Tom and I were the two that believed in in the company. You know, I had come from television world, was a director producer. And I loved the work that Mountain View was doing. It was, you know, big productions on an international scale, getting into the strategy that would inform briefs, define creatives. And then, you know, I joined Mountain View and all of a sudden I was flying all over the world, which was, you know, new experience for me as a producer. So given the opportunity to grab that as an owner, and see what Tom and I could do with it. I think it was very exciting. Um, well, first terrifying,
0: <laughs> and then exciting enough to go through with it. How did the first conversation come about? Who, who brought it up first?
1: Well, you know, as these things go, they take lots of twists and turns. So prior to Stephen and I sort of being the key employees, there was a leadership team that Jim had. And he was always like, hey, who wants part of this? And we'd go around the table and it was always like, no, 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 no. And uh, for him, it was like, well, something's got to change if I want to get out from under this. So the first thing that happened was he started shopping the company to similar production companies. He had a couple of consultants and it started with um, two specific companies in New York City that he was like, hey, do you want to buy Mountain View, acquire Mountain View, You know, and at the time I was the chief operating officer, so I was kind of interviewing those companies. And would I want to go work for them? And you know, as deals go, there was a lot of excitement. It took a long time, and then it wasn't a fit or nothing happened. But Jim took a pause and then he still wanted to sell it. So there was a company in Baltimore.
2: Yep. That we um, both went to.
1: And then Steven and I went to go hang out with this company in Baltimore, thinking that we were going to go work for them and they would acquire Mountain View. And they were kind of a similar, kind of similar Mm -hmm. company, more event focused than we are, but similar clients and similar production values. But in the end, I think that Steven and I just couldn't see ourselves working for them.
2: I can state that even stronger. (laughs) (laughs) After that third company and meeting with these guys, I felt like, is Jim selling us? It was Jim selling me and Tom, because this seems crazy. And I'm going to go working for this guy. And we're going to work for these two guys. And I don't know. It didn't make sense. And I think it was leaving that meeting in the car where the conversation started around, hey, would you guys be interested in buying it?
1: Yeah, Um, I think Jim was sort of like, hey, something's got to give. So if you don't want to go work for this company or this company or this company, then you guys, you should step up and do this and then let's figure out a way to do it. And so, you know, I had certainly never wanted to be a company owner, but I looked at Stephen and said, that guy's smart. I bet I could do it with him.
2: Jim said, would you guys want to buy it? And we always joke that, you know, at the same moment, Tom said, no. And I said, Yes. (laughs)
1: Yep, that's how it went.
0: So uh, what happened? So did you two kind of go away and think about it or or how how did how did it kind of progress from that car journey leaving the company in Baltimore?
2: I mean, it's something I never imagined, you know, when I joined Mountain View that this would be an option. And I was a producer director. I didn't have any sense of how to buy a company or what a deal might look like and so we just started talking about it and I think, you know, researching what buyout mod- different models were out there. And I think you probably started doing the same thing.
1: Yeah. And at the same time, I mean, Jim is a driver. I mean, <laughs> he is a driver. Yeah. So like the moment that we
2: <laughs> expressed
1: any interest, scheming. he just started, you know, feeding <laughs> us all sorts of information and data, you know, like, he had already had valuations of the company, you know, in those other conversations. So he's feeding us that he's feeding us, you know, deep financials. He's writing us long, informative emails about here are five different ways that we could structure a deal, you know? So, you know, then it was just uh, for us to sort of go, okay,
0: what sounds attractive Mm -hmm. to us, And what do you think Jim's, I mean, I know it's hard to speculate, but what do you think his motivation was? Do you think he was just excited by the concept of an employee buyout and that it would be you guys? Or do you think it was that he'd had some conversations, it hadn't gone how he'd planned, there wasn't really a good fit buyer there, and he was a bit stuck?
1: Um, I think it's some combination of all yeah. those things. I mean, I think that, you know, he would have kept shopping it to different companies and he probably would have found somebody that was a right fit that sooner or later. But I was just looking back at an email that he wrote early, very early on. And, you know, he wrote like, this would be so great to do this with people who know the company so well, mm-hmm. you know, and I think he liked it. Um, like that idea that a he could you know he he knew us, he knew our intentions and he knew that we could
0: carry the company forward and do you think in commercial terms because I'm presumably doing a kind of management buyout you're not going to get as good a deal as you would if you kind of shopped it out on the open market as it were what, what do you think to that
1: well I, th- I think that's definitely true. Mm-hmm. But at some point, time becomes the thing, right? Because you can shop forever. And if you don't find, you know, a buyer on the open market, and also, if you think about the timing, we're talking 2007, 2008, 2008, you're heading into a big recession. Um, so at some point, you go, okay, if I make a deal with these guys, yeah, I may not get what I hoped, but I'm still hopefully going to get, a, you know, what I need.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that is the case for a lot of business owners. You know, legacy is really important. So, you know, part of it is, yes, I want to be rewarded for my life's work. And, you know, I think I should get paid X amount of money and my business is worth this amount. But I think also for lots of people, a big part of it is, will the company continue after I'm gone? And, and what what is my legacy? And it seems like um, Jim really recognized that in the deal with you guys. He did. And, you know, the negotiation wasn't always easy,
2: but I do think the constant was he did believe in us and wanted us to be successful. You know, as hard as some of those conversations were, I think ultimately he was excited that you know that we were doing it.
0: I'd like to dig into that a little bit more. So <laughs> tell me about the tell me about the negotiations and, and how that went. Well, it
2: started. The first sort of models that Jim shared with us were more earnout type models. Uh, split ownership you know i think we, we were looking at documents there was one version where we would be owners of two-thirds of the company he would retain a third and then over five years there was a, a fee structure set up designed to get him to a certain number which was management fees percentage of profit that sort of deal
1: and you know with the idea you know for those who haven't been through the process that you know assuming the company was profitable our profits would give us more ownership, lower his percentage. I mean, what Jim's assumption was, and probably because we told him this, we didn't have you know cash sitting around in a bank to just buy the company from him.
2: Yeah. The no. only money was in the company and it was his. Right.
1: So I think he, in recognizing that, his mind went to, okay, let's do this on a slow basis where I know it's going to happen. I know I'm going to get the money I want in the long haul, and it'll be a little less painful for Tom and Stephen to go try to find money. Mm
0: -hmm. Can you give me an idea roughly um, just what the revenue was and what the profits were at the time?
1: Yeah, the revenue at the time, we had sort of peaked at about 3 million. And then in the few years preceding the sale, it had dropped a, a little bit you know, 10, 20% from that. So, you along with that, profits were going down, you know, there wasn't much in terms of profit in those years directly preceding the sale, certainly probably 5% or something after taxes. So there wasn't a ton of money profit-wise.
2: Yeah. So as we were negotiating, you know, the other thing we always joke, you know, Jim thought the company was worth a billion dollars. And we thought it was worth nothing without us in it. Um, and so, you know, point in negotiation, get to an agreement somewhere in the middle. But in the earnout structure, you know, that had a, a profit, a pretty big, high percentage of profit share for Jim, and we were looking at, you know, revenue that had been declining and wasn't very profitable. And so I think that, at least for me, the equation wasn't making a whole lot of sense as we kept going through iterations, you know, different deal memos that described it. And then the other thing I'll say, Mountain View was Jim's baby. And there was the sort of financial structure of a earnout buyout, But then all these quirky other little things like, you know, oh, my friend, the lawyer is getting old. Will you keep him on and continue to pay his monthly retainer, you know, and all these different things that were really, really important to him, you know, and... I was looking at him in the deal memo going, why is that in there? (laughs) That kind of thing that.
1: And I think, you know, and this is also stating the obvious, you know, you know, in a podcast about purchasing companies or mergers and acquisitions or whatever is business is intensely personal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, of course, you know, Jim had founded this company from nothing Grew it to a really respectable business, yeah. doing work with multinational companies, and of course, it has to feel like it, it's worth a, a billion dollars, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Be, you know, and then and that's where the emotions come into the deal, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, on one hand, we're novice entrepreneurs with with no money, really, you know, <laughs> and thinking we got to get the Best possible deal we can get. And Jim's trying to figure out his next life and mm-hmm. go, I need to get the most money I can possibly get.
0: I think it's really common with business owners, is they they kind of value their business based on the hard work they've put into it, you know, based on the awards that they've won. And it's it's not really a commercial valuation at all. It's like, I think this is a great company. I've worked really hard, so therefore I should be rewarded accordingly. Whereas actually, you know, what you're saying is profits for, you know, you were doing like 5% or something, you were kind of scraping along, really. Yeah. And you yeah. say, well, there are, you know, actually, you're just doing a simple valuation, multiple of EBITDA, it's not worth that much. And obviously, doing a deal, you have to kind of find a way to meet in the middle.
2: <laughs> yeah. And then eventually, the deal structure, and we were trying to remember the catalysts for this, moved from earnout to a straight 100% buyout. We formulated a business plan and started talking to banks to get money to to finance it that way.
1: And I think, you know, Jim was probably of the mindset, you know, I don't know if you guys are going to be able to get money right from a bank. Not in a bad way, but just the reality of it. And so I think his sights were only on the way to do this is through an earnout. And I think for us, we're like, hey, if we're going to do this, we want to have full control. We want to know the price we're going to pay because in that earn-out equation, you could get pretty big numbers for Jim, which was a good strategy on his part.
0: From your point of view, you're kind of saying, you're gonna take his company, turn it around, make it profitable, and he'll get all the benefits of that. Right. Right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I just think when we decided to pursue banks, we did it really aggressively. And I think that's probably the best decision we made. And, you know, again, completely new world for me, talking to banks about, you know, huge chunks of money.
1: (laughs) And I think, you know, Stephen and I were, you know, we're talking to friends and quasi consultants, you know, to get a sense. And it was one conversation where we thought like, it's going to be really hard for us to go to a traditional bank or or at the time, even Mountain Views Bank to get that financing. And so we went to a very non-traditional funding source that someone would see is um, UPS, the shipping company, the guys in Brown, they had a capital arm, but their mission, because they want loyal customers was, you know, they offered capital to, you know, get you in the UPS family. And not that we were a big importer exporter, but that was, that was what their charge was. And so they had money to loan and not a lot of people knew about it.
0: Mm-hmm. And you guys are very fortunate in the U S because you have the small business administration, the SBA, who will back these loans, right? So they'll, that's That's a government body that will guarantee what is 85 cents on the dollar or something of a a loan. So it becomes very low risk for whichever bank is going to lend. So that's, that's great. so was that like a sort of specialized product, that loan for, for management buyouts or or what was it? Um,
1: It was just a straight up SBA loan. Yeah. And, Interestingly, one of their concerns was how much the former owner would actually be involved. And they actually, they liked deals where the former owner's founder's role was minimized. So they weren't into management consultant fees and that kind of stuff. Because I think that they saw that as taking money out of the company that they had just invested in, Mm -hmm. you know?
0: See, and what were, the, um, what were the terms of the loan? Like, how, how many years, and what was the sort of interest rate like?
1: It was a 10 year loan, and it was at eight and three quarter percent interest.
0: Okay, and that was, I guess, what interest rates were about five percent at the time or something. So, it was yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: So, one of the things that happened is once we turned to, you know what, Jim, if we're going to do this, we want to buy you out, then it became a hard dollar negotiation Mm because now you weren't going upside downside at all you're saying this is it here's a number and you know if you say that we'll shy away from specific numbers but if you say that we bought the company at 1x i think jim started at 2x you know and then The bank did a valuation, which was a multiple of, I think it was 3.32. They did a valuation. They looked at it like four or five different ways. And what they settled on was some average of it, which was a multiple of 3.32 that they said they would finance. They said, this is what it is. And so when we got that number, then that's what we said to Jim, okay, this is all we can do because that's Mm -hmm. all the money we can get. And that was probably about, maybe it was one in a quarter X or one in a little bit more X. But as the calendar shows, part of the interesting part of this was right on the edge of that recession. And at the time, our largest customer pulled a ton of projects. And not surprising, at the eve of the deal, we got a
0: little bit nervous so um, did they pull this before you'd signed?
1: Yes. So we okay. hadn't finalized the letter of intent. We hadn't signed anything with the banks. But suddenly the prospect was, is we were going to be a, a company with much lower revenue. Mm-hmm. And we did get nervous. Did you
0: re, did you renegotiate at that point?
1: And we went to Jim and said, this, I don't think this is going to happen. And to his credit, he said... What if I took X off of the amount and got it down to what we thought was a really good deal? And we didn't Mm -hmm. negotiate much beyond that. But he, in good faith, said, I know it's scary. So here, I'll give up that because he really wanted the deal to close. Yeah. And so.
2: So reduced it by 15%. Yep. And then. Again, I think we were lucky to have a bank behind us. Our salesperson at the bank wanted to close quickly on the deal. So that, again, was in our favor. Just sort of kept it moving
0: forward. Okay. And what was the timeline between meeting in Baltimore to closing?
1: May to January. Yeah. May was Baltimore. Very early emails, deal memos was in the June, July, July Fourth here in the in the states, our Independence Day. Uh, so there's a metaphor. You know, was was the first draft of a deal memo. Mm-hmm. You know, we went from July to September thinking about some way to do an earnout, and and then we really spent you know September to the end of the year just trying to figure out okay, can we get a bank to finance this? And we were successful.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And then talk me through what happened when you signed? Was there a big ceremony or, or how did that play out?
1: So Jim was sentimental about the whole thing as he would be. And, you know, we're in, Steve and I are both live in Atlanta. Jim lives in New York. We have an office in New York. And UPS, they could have done a closing in Atlanta, but Jim was sort of like, I want to come to the closing. I want to be there to sign the papers in person, you know, and shake hands. And so he was like, we got to do the closing in New York. So instead of closing in Atlanta, we schedule a closing in out on Long Island in New York so that Jim could go. We flew up to New York. We took a train, we had suitcases, we're walking across the highway. We took taxis. I mean, it was hard to get to this this office where the closing was going to happen. And in the end, Jim decided not to come. (laughs) (laughs) So it was just a weird, it was a weird, funny part of the story. So, um, we were up there and, uh, he did it. He signed everything virtually. And literally we were faxing signatures back and forth and doing some electronic transfers, but we're in an office with a bunch of people we don't know. Jim's on the phone. There's no Zoom or anything even at that point. So we're just, you know, we're on a conference line, faxing signatures back and forth and the bank transferring money, dispersing it out, some to Jim. The company at that point had a line of credit and a a commercial loan that it had to pay off so it's dispersing it out those things out jim gets a little bit of money and all the you know the lawyers and the closing fees and all those people get their money and we're just signing big humongous piles of documents <laughs> cuz there's no shortage of bureaucracy with an SBA loan mm-hmm
0: yeah i think that's often the case isn't it by the time it actually gets to closing people are so exhausted and it's been through so many twists and turns and it can often be a bit of an anti-climax but then that night we went to a fancy bar in new york city
2: ordered yeah. martinis yeah had a cheers sort of said holy shit <laughs> <laughs> here we go <laughs> uh-oh what now, <laughs> what now? We, we owe the bank a lot of money
0: yeah, yeah. Was it personally? Got, it's not personally secured, is it? So yeah. at the time, this was just
2: prior at the very beginning of the Great Recession in 2008. We got one of the last uncollateralized loans before the sort of whole structure changed. So timing of that was really fortunate as well.
0: I was going to ask, actually, just on the sort of legal fees side of it like was that a significant sum that you paid out to lawyers or
1: i mean not really it was all of those kind of things were probably 15 to 30k yeah. you know we were pretty conservative about how we used the attorneys and and so i think half of that was fees that we were paying the bank to do the valuation you pay the bank for whatever titles and all that kind of stuff and then we probably had 15 grand in legal fees
2: So in terms of finances, the bank gave us a chunk of money. We had to put in a percentage, personal money into it. They wanted to make sure that we had skin in the game. And then in addition to the money we borrowed for that, there was operating cash.
0: Which was left in the business.
2: No, which was part of the loan as well.
1: Yeah, because the loan really had two parts. One was to make the asset purchase. But then the other part was, obviously, what was in the company, both cash and receivables and payables, belonged to Jim. So we had a bank loan and zero dollars. (laughs) So they gave us a working capital loan as well and packaged it up into that. So we at least had money to start.
0: Mm -hmm. So, because it was an asset purchase, did you set up a new company then? Yes. And then did you have any issues with contracts with your clients as no. a result of it being? a no. no. You know,
1: I think that what was interesting was because of the nature of, you know... We're not making widgets. We're a creative agency and projects can come in and they can be in and out in a month or they can be in and out in a year, sometimes much longer. So the first thing is there was a bank of projects that were ongoing. And that's a really interesting part of the equation because what we did is we went project by project and determined that on the date of the closing what percentage of the work sort of fell under also. Jim's leader leadership and what is under the new company? and so we then divided all as those projects finished and clients paid, you know we still had to settle up on those projects.
0: yeah, um, yeah, and presumably expenses as well. so you will have spent yeah. some money so you would have had to have done a proper sort of work in progress calculation. Yeah. How far through the project are you in terms of income and and expenses?
1: It almost worked the opposite. Because the first thing that we did was we announced that we had bought the company. Luckily, all of our employees were excited and stayed Mm -hmm. and had other people calling us to come work for us. But also, the clients were super supportive. Mm -hmm. They were excited for us, and I dare say... They were excited to bring projects to us because
0: they wanted us to succeed. Yeah. So did the other employees, did they know anything about this?
1: I I, they certainly had inklings because I mean we were in closed door meetings all the time, you know, and Jim would come down and we'd close ourselves in an office for eight hours. You know, we were in a lot of hush-hush meetings, and I don't remember when we said this is really happening. Was it even in advance of se- signing? We did. Yeah. We probably told them it was going to happen because they were part of the, you know, their their names are in the asset purchase document. Mm-hmm. It says here are the current employees. <laughs> you know? um. So it's all part of it. but But, you know, there's a lot of crazy parts of the process that you don't think about, mm-hmm. you know. So, yes, we set up a company and we had to set up a company in a different name because it couldn't have the same name. Right. And then we had to after the sale, change the name. We could change the name back to what it was right. originally. Um, so you do that and you're setting up all of those employees 401k holdings. We had to set that up and transfer all those funds over into a new situation. You know, it's just like all those little things that happen, you know, and um deciding that the accountant that had been the accountant for our company had negotiated with Jim. So we had to go find an accountant because it just didn't seem like, you know, that was a good enough separation, you know? Right. So, yeah. So you're starting, it is, a. it's like a startup, but like at the time it's like a 27 year old startup startup with yep.
2: a good reputation. That's what we bought the, you know, reputation in the marketplace and on a nice conference room table. <laughs>
0: Um, I'm kind of interested because you said a lot of time spent negotiating the deal in the lead-up, and then quite a lot of administrative work following it. Did that distract you from the day-to-day business? Did that have any effect on your client work?
2: I remember being busy. I mean, crazy. I mean, busy. it's just
1: a you know, uh, it was just a second full-time job. Yeah. But you got to get it done. Yeah. So you couldn't get distracted. I mean, I think Stephen was doing a huge project in Greenland. Yeah. Oh, in that time. But, you know, it, it can't stop. You, know, you can't That's say, right. oh, I'm gone for a couple of weeks. You know, we're just going to, you know, you've got to keep moving it down the road. So in some ways, I liken it to it was just another big project. Yeah. And you treat it like a project. It's got a budget. <laughs> it's got a schedule. Mm-hmm. And And it's got a, a due date. And that's what you're aiming for. And so you treat it like that. And um, it certainly is a huge distraction. At the same time, it's emotional and anxiety producing because if you've never done it before, there's a lot wrapped up in it.
2: I think that's a great analogy because we are project producers and know how to execute on, on those things. And that's exactly how we took this on.
0: Great. So I'm kind of interested in how it went after you bought it, what happened over the next few years. And you know, you obviously had a big loan on the balance sheet. And like, how much did that worry you? (laughs) Well,
1: again, just because it can't be stated enough, we closed in 2008 before the financial markets crashed. And 2008 was an okay year. It was an okay year, but we were still cleaning. We had to clean up the mess of the work in progress for that almost that entire year. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it was still a decent year, but I got to say that our clients really supported us and we had incredible years, incredible years in 2009, 10, and 11 when the rest of the world mm-hmm. was not happy. And where a lot of companies were going into business, we were, you know, if the company had plateaued and gone down a little bit, we quickly experienced it going in the right direction. We saw really good profit margins in those years. Why do you think that was? Because we were managing the finances so tightly. You know, Jim owned the company and he was working on projects within the company. So some of the profits of the company were in support of those projects as they could be. So we were just managing tightly, not spending money we didn't have or wasn't in the bank account and just watching it closely. And our clients needed to do stuff. So they just trusted us to do stuff. And we did. And, you know, the end of the story is awesome, which is we were seeing record profits. We were keeping the money in the company we believed in a zero debt company so that 10 year loan we paid off in year 5 wow which is <laughs> you know
0: which was amazing were you seeing top line revenue growth in those years after a lot, those years a that lot. as well
1: yeah like and, 30% like
0: okay did you kind of actively start marketing harder or uh, so i agree with everything
2: tom said but i will add i think at least for me an element of fear Um, because this was our business now and we were the leads. And so as much as our clients needed us, I think we were very actively pursuing every lead we could with the new energy that was both excitement and fear and a determination to make this work. And for me, just learning how to, it's a long evolution process, but learning how to think like a business owner and even understanding what that means, which I I didn't. um, And just in service of the new responsibilities that that come with that.
0: And so fast forward to now, like, give us a bit of of an overview of where the business is at today. How many employees have you got? What kind of revenues are you looking at? What are your plans for the future?
1: We're still about 15, but I think that, you know, the the nature of industry has changed. So we have a freelance contractor staff that there's a number of people who work a lot with us. So while we're 15 in staff numbers and employee numbers, I feel like the team is much bigger than that. And that's also allows us to flex nicely. Uh, Revenue has continued to grow. We haven't really had lean years. They've been good these past 14 years. So if we started at a little bit less than 3 million, you know, we're we're at 4 million now. And, uh, you know, we're certainly growing our portfolio of services yeah. every year.
2: One of the things we started investing in new types of talent. So just really diversified and expanded what we do, um, which is, you know, made our team look a lot different.
0: And. Do you have any thoughts for your own exits?
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, we're we're certainly
1: starting to to have those discussions. And uh, it's sort of interesting. And maybe it's how Jim felt about it. You know, we look around and probably I don't think there's employees who are going to buy the company. But, you know, I, I, I don't know that for a fact, but, you know, it doesn't. I guess like
0: Jim, like, Jim didn't either. Right. There doesn't
1: seem to be a lot of interest that way. So I'm approaching 60, you know, and approaching being in the work world for 50 years. So like, you know, I, I, you know it's certainly a, a midterm conversation now and mm-hmm. starting to line up, line up those situations that'll make this an attractive company to sell. Creative agencies are tough. I mean, mm-hmm. they're tough. Stephen and I are heavily involved. So we're a lot of the company. And so having somebody else see great value in it, it's not so dissimilar to what what Jim went through.
0: Oh, absolutely right, yeah. Um, so just looking back on how it all went down, is there anything that you'd do differently if you were to do it again? I certainly, I have no regrets and I can't
2: think of, I mean, I honestly feel like we got lucky. Just first of all, that the opportunity was there. And that we both entered into this process of buying the company with no prior experience on how to do that, and negotiated it well together. Brought our own individual skill sets together to do it um, in a very complementary way, and then kept the doors open, kept it alive after that. So, a combination of hard work and and luck has put us, you know, in a good place.
0: That's business. Yeah, I, I- combination of hard work and luck. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't make a different decision. In the end, we got a good deal.
0: Yeah.
1: If all had gone in the toilet after 2008, we wouldn't have had a good deal, but in the end, you know, the way that we nurtured it, it became a good deal mm-hmm. really quickly. And so that's fun. I mean, you know, and so we have not, and knock on all of the wood, you know, we haven't had like major, major concerns with, you know, the, we're going to lose the company, or mm-hmm. we're going to lose our houses. We have not had to use the line of credit to keep the doors open, yeah. so we're really fortunate.
0: Right. Is there anything else? Any other nuggets of wisdom that you uh, that you haven't haven't mentioned?
1: I mean, I think for anyone who's considering that on either side of it, I think you're not going to be able to figure out all of the ins and outs of what the eventual deal will be. Mm -hmm. There's going to be so many twists and turns as we talked about that you can't get so hung up on mapping out the perfect deal that everything stops because you have to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. Because if you shut it down, then it's done. And especially with these smaller business, it's all wrapped up in both business and personal and common sense and emotion and and you have to be ready for that.
2: Yeah. Be open to the negotiation wherever it goes and really with the eye on the long term plan. Not,
0: cool. for not, <laughs> not, for not for the faint heart. Not for the faint hearted. No. I know. No. no. <laughs> Um, that was great, guys. That was really good. Thank you very much. Really fascinating to hear the details around how it all went down and hopefully a nice trip down memory lane for you two as well. Yes.
2: <laughs> yes. Dug out all our old documents and it
0: is fascinating. So thank you. Thank you Yeah.
1: the opportunity.
0: Thank you very much for listening to the Exit Plan podcast. This podcast was edited and mixed by Guy Hickson and was produced by me, Barnaby Cook you enjoyed it, please leave us a review to help other people find us. If you're wondering what's next for you and your business and want to chat about an exit plan, connect with me on LinkedIn.